Second, welcome to Resistance Radio. I am John Kane. I am your host, and I want to give a great shout out to Washington D.C. for for broadcasting this program. And however you listen, if you listen to us as a podcast, if you catch these shows on WBAI in New York or on WPFW in Washington D.C., uh, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to listen in and perhaps gain some insight that you may never have had. Certainly gain the opportunity to hear an opinion you may not have ever heard before. Whether you can embrace that opinion or not is a, is a whole other issue. But, uh, hey, look, uh, if you are listening in Washington, D.C., I ask that you, uh, that you support WPFW by going to their pledge line, which is 202-588-9739, or go online to WPFWFM.org and make a contribution of any kind. Um, look, you can do a large one-shot donation. You can do smaller donations. You can do time donations. You can become a sustaining member by making a weekly contribution off your credit card or checking account. Uh, as they say, you can set it and forget it. <laughs> and uh, and look, whether it's $5 a month or $10 a month, which is far less than what you're paying for other, um, you know, other services or, or other products on a, on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, um, it does a lot to support this radio station. So, again, I greatly appreciate it. Hey, look, I also want to remind people that not only does this program go up as a podcast on, on any of the, the major podcast platforms, you can just, just simply search Resistance Radio with John and Regan. But I also do another podcast called Let's Talk Native. And if you search Let's Talk Native with John Kane, you could find that podcast, again, on any of the main uh, podcast platforms that are out there. I do have a YouTube channel, which is Let's Talk Native TV. And there you can find not only oftentimes videos of, of these shows, uh, but also short-form videos. If you go down the channel a little bit, you find the short-form videos that I've done on everything from Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Doctrine of Discovery, uh, from mascot issues to Christopher Columbus, uh, to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, uh, some of the racism we've experienced in in in, you know, in other places like Canada that oftentimes is, uh, is is kind of overlooked. So again, there are many ways that you can get some of the insight that we've uh, that we've you know shared here on this show um, and uh, and on other uh, other platforms. So I encourage you to you take a look. I've got a couple of issues that I specifically want to address. Um, you know, look, I've talked a lot about um, the Interior Department and the fact that the uh, uh, the Secretary of the Interior is a Native person, Deb Haaland, from Laguna Pueblo in uh, New Mexico. Um, and I've been critical, and I remain somewhat critical. So I'm going to talk about that. But before I do that, I do have to address something that – and the reason I have to address this thing is because it has really kind of been sweeping all over – the internet, uh, both on Facebook and Twitter, and, and you know, and other newspaper or uh, media, native media outlets, it's the Pope's apology to indigenous people for the uh, the doctrine of discovery. And I got to tell you, not a fan, <laughs> not a fan of apologies. Certainly not a fan of the Pope or any of the popes. Um, and this this token gesture of offering an apology through all of this pomp and circumstance. I mean, look, I actually saw native people dancing in front of the Pope sitting in what can only be described as a throne. I mean, it, it is so condescending. Oh no, he was, they weren't dancing for the Pope. They were dancing for, for the children 
uh, you know, who are victims of residential schools. Really, really, that's you know, that's what you were dancing for. Then why is why was the Pope in all of his ornate wear sitting in a throne um, overlooking this stuff? I, 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 look, I have issues with it. I also have issues on how native people are assumed to have been represented by those those people who went who traveled to Rome. Don't know who paid for it. Don't I mean? Don't even really care. But the fact that uh, that you know several uh, native people representing supposedly representing native groups of people went before the Pope and you know gave their statements. You know, I, I know there was one young lady who I've known since she was a little girl went out there and, and made the argument that that we have a soul. Well, I don't know what that even means. I mean, she wouldn't talk about the soles of our feet. She was talking about some religious context, some spiritual uh, essence that is really part of Christian dogma. But she made the argument that because we have a soul that we're human too. Well, if we didn't, you know, we are not human and... And if we don't meet that standard of humanity and the classification of humanity, does it still mean that we're less? So, so other create parts of creation are less significant because they don't have a quote unquote soul. I mean, because Christianity doesn't believe that any other life other than humanity has has a soul. And when I see a native person standing before the Pope. Suggesting that we're the same because we have a soul too. Look, that sounds like Christian conformity to me. So, look, I have a problem with even the ask. I don't know. Did they go there asking for an apology? Because you know what an apology is? It's words. You know, in the Catholic Church, they have this. Uh, they 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 call it contrition, or even penance. So to get to to achieve forgiveness from God. You have to do something. You can't just say, you know, admit your your sins. You've got to do something to, you know, to overcome or to offset or to, you know, there has to be some sort of restorative justice part of this of this equation. Even the Catholic Church acknowledges that. But I didn't see the Pope offering any contrition. Look, the doctrine of Christian discovery is a problem. It's always been a problem. And it doesn't. It doesn't even start with Christopher Columbus. It starts with with slavery and the, you know, and the the human degradation that uh, the Africans in Western Africa experienced because of Portugal and other European nations that were that were going there raiding their 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 lands, their people, their you know their resources, all of it. Then it would turn into into Columbus's voyages. But the, the doctrine of Christian discovery is a major problem. But to have some guy, you know, dressed in, you know, all of these robes and sitting on his throne apologize? If you're not going to perform any act of contrition, yeah, that's a Catholic thing, act of contrition. Are you going to give anything back? I mean, there, were, there was literally billions of dollars of gold and silver that the Catholic Church took out of Native territories in, in North and South America, primarily South America. Are they going to give any back? Are they going to repudiate and condemn, openly condemn, and call on nations that have codified the doctrine of Christian discovery in their law to strip it? Because that's what the United States did. That's what Canada did. That's what Australia and New Zealand did. Africa. All these, these colonial powers 
put this doctrine of Christian discovery into their law. In the United States, it became codified in law after a case involving two white guys fighting over land that there were leases that, that really didn't even conflict with each other. This was called the Johnson v. McIntosh case. And that is when Justice John Marshall codifies the doctrine of Christian discovery into U.S. law. And it's never been removed. Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited it in 2005. And ironically, she cited it in an Oneida case, and the, this young, young lady who went to, to Rome was Oneida, or is Oneida. I don't know if she cited that in, in, her, in her lecture to the Pope, but, I mean, this is how old and how recent the impact of the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. And in case you don't know what it is, it's really this, this uh, church dogma that says that when a Christian nation goes into a, uh, a territory where there are non-Christians, pagans, or enemies as Christ, as we were uh, identified, that they could take everything. And, and that they, they could regard that land as void of humanity because even though Native people lived there, we didn't have to be counted as human beings. I mean, they, they call it terra nullis, nullius because they said it was void of humanity. Yeah, there was just these, these, other, these other things that lived there, like animals and, uh, and these, kind, these people who had not achieved the status of humanity because they were not Christians. And, of course, there was a, a whole lot of other ways that they could dismiss our humanity because of our distinction from them. And so... They could not only enslave our people, murder our people, rape our people. Yeah, how does the, the Catholic Church endorse rape? But they sure as hell did. And, of course, they could take all the land, claim title. In fact, in fact when Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited you know, the Doctrine of Christian Discovery in her footnotes on the, the, this Oneida, uh, City of Cheryl versus Oneida case, she said the title to the land became vested in the sovereigns. First, the discovering nations of Europe, then the states, and then the United States. She didn't say how that happened. She says just under the doctrine of Christian discovery. She just cites it as just a matter of fact. Oh, obviously, once white people showed up here, the land no longer, the title to the land no longer rested with the with the with the with the human inhabitants. Now we can get into the debate on how Native people viewed things like owning land. But the idea that the white folks could just claim ownership from all of the rest of creation that existed here, including a vast population of Native people? And, of course, this isn't just about taking the land and taking the resources and enslaving. This is about asserting jurisdiction, the same, the same kind of thing that exists today. We are still plagued with some of this. Why? Because it's a part of the law. There's not a single case that we fight the states over, whether it's gaming, whether it's taxes, whether it's anything else, that doesn't rest on this idea that because the church said that we were, sub, that we were somehow submissive and inferior to the Catholic or to the Christian nations of Europe, and by virtue of that, we were, were certainly subjugated at, uh, upon discovery. That's what lays at the foundation of, of all of this. I mean, it, and it still does. So to have, you know, his holiness offer an apology, that does nothing. That's, that's lip service. 
I mean, and again, there's billions of dollars that uh, that enriched the uh, the Vatican from native native peoples. In fact, there was actually somewhere written that that among the riches that were taken from native lands was supposed to be a set aside. Well, that set aside never came back. Now, I want to remind people that Switzerland was sued for some of the riches that they received as a result of the Holocaust and all of the, the events leading up to the Holocaust. Switzerland got sued for, for a, a lot of money, you know, and, and, and riches and treasures that were taken by, by Nazi Germany and that were stored there. So if in a modern time, a country like Switzerland or some of the banks or, or whomever uh, the parties were in Switzerland that were, were sued for these, you know, for these riches, why can't the Catholic Church be, be sued? And, and, you know, look, you think when you hear an apology from the Catholic Church that's, that somehow has some, some legal um, significance. Well, it doesn't. And the United States, you know, I'll give an example. When the United States apologized for the coup against the, the Kingdom of Hawaii, the, and, and then the Hawaiians tried to use that, that apology, which was a joint resolution of Congress, in, I, I believe it was a land claims case, the, the court said, no, those, those joint resolutions of Congress have no legal bearing. So the fact that the United States apologized for what it did and the role it played in, in, in trying to subjugate and steal the, you know, Hawaii, you know, well, just because we apologize doesn't mean that you can do anything about it. And it doesn't give you any kind of legal standing. It has no legal significance. Well, I realize that this is, you know, this, the United States, and this is an, an apology from the United States through a joint resolution of Congress. It's not the same thing as an apology from the Pope, but there's still no legal bearing. I mean, the, the Pope can apologize all he wants, and he can he can you know give a, a long litany of of all the crimes that were associated with it. But if you're not willing to do something about it, it, it this is what I say about residential schools. Look, it is. It is important to identify the crimes committed by those schools, the operators of those schools, and, and the individuals, if you can name them, even though many of them are long since perished. It's important to identify those crimes and who they were committed against, the, the victims of those crimes, both those who never survived those crimes and those who barely survived it, who only had a part of them killed through the kill the Indian, save the man uh, policies of, of residential schools. Yeah, it's important to do that. But if we ignore the larger picture, the larger context of what residential schools were or the doctrine of discovery really was, which was to eliminate us, and in many ways, very successfully, look, our populations have diminished significantly since, uh, since European contact. And, and the European contact utilized this doctrine of Christian discovery as a means to... You know, to kill us, to commit genocide against us. Those residential schools are the the the, the clearest example. They they hit every every definition of genocide. There's no question that the residential schools were genocide. But if you're only going to say, okay, we're only going to look at the individual crimes, we're we're not going to address the genocide. We're not going to just address the the largest period of land loss that Native people experienced. That hundred years of residential schools built upon the doctrine of Christian discovery? If we're not going to address that, if we're not going to address the loss of identity 
and, and the, 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 the claim diminishment of our sovereignty? You know, I, I say this because, you know, of the, the great work that Stephen Newcomb did on, uh, on the Doctrine of Discovery, but he also tried to, to explain the significance of words. He, he wrote this article once that, that said, we're, we're, were we tribes before contact? Because that whole idea of being a tribe was a manifestation of, of, of Europe. It was, it was part of colonization. So if we weren't called tribes before that, were we tribes? And are we now? Did those words become true because we accepted the language and the, the definitions of that? I mean, that's, he, he posed the question. But he also raises, raises the issue about, and I've talked about this already, but he raises the issue about the word indigenous. I mean, our, is our current existence only defined by their words? So are we merely the descendants of the people who existed before colonization? Or are we those same people? And I argue we, we are those same people. And if we aren't those same people, then why? Why? Because of the genocide committed. So even if you're, you are somehow a little unsteady or unsure of your identity today because of 200 years, 200, 400 years, 500 years of genocide, isn't the real reconciliation associated with both the residential schools and this doctrine of Christian discovery, doesn't it have to involve restoration? I mean, look, you can't just give us our population back, although it seems like an awful lot of white people in the last census claimed that they were are native, so I don't know what that's supposed to mean. And are we going to get all of our land back? No. But we do have some land back issues. We do have some land claims issues, some that have been been made for many, many years and some that are yet to be made. So there has to be some restoration of, of some of that land loss. And more importantly, and Related to it, there has to be restoration of our identity, our autonomy, our sovereignty, our distinction. We are in a constant state of, of conflict with state and federal authorities, and, and provincial authorities, U.S. and Canadian side, because of this notion that we have been subjugated. There's no legal basis to say we were subjugated other than, you know, the, other than the doctrine of Christian discovery, but there's no event. I'll, you know, again, <laughs> there are some that will say, well, that event was discovery by white people. Yeah, but it's not documented. There's nobody to say, okay, well, white people showed up. Even though Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that the title to our land became vested in them as the discovering nations. But what is the legal basis for that? How did that happen? When did we transfer our sovereignty, ourselves, our individuality? our national character, our cultural character, when did we give that over? When did we accept denationalization? When did we accept assimilation or, or, or say, yes, we are yours now? When did we transfer that? What's the date? What's the event? What's the document? They don't exist. So if we're going to talk about the Doctrine of Christian Discovery and an apology or we're going to talk about how do we reckon with the, the 100 years of residential schools. 
Well, we don't do it with a, by just writing a check. And we don't do it by identifying who the victims are or were of residential schools because we're all victims of it. We don't do it by saying, okay, you deserve $10,000 for, uh, for what was done to your, your, your grandmother or your, or your grandmother's generation. No. That doesn't solve the problem. Look, is there, is there some sort of reparations that can be done you know, as a part of a settlement? I suppose. But recognizing our sovereignty and our distinction is the key to, to not only our current existence, but it's the key to our future. Because we are being phased out. By suggesting we are mere descendants of a once proud people is, is somehow assuming that we are Canadians and Americans. And, and I got to tell you, many Native people have accepted that. Because we don't know, even know there's an alternative to that, you know, you know, to that path forward. But not all Native people do. And many Native people will draw a line in the sand and say, no, we are not mere descendants. We are those people. I'm not just a, just a descendant of my grandmother or my great-grandmother. I am that same people, those same people. So I'm not going to apologize for the Pope for not accepting his apology either. I think the whole thing was, you know, was frankly BS. As it was described by one of my friends, it was just performative art. I mean, it really was. I mean, watching all these people dressed up in traditional clothing and, and the Pope dressed up in his traditional clothing, it looked like a freaking costume party. And I'm sorry if, if Native people are offended by this view. Well, no, no, I'm not. I'm not sorry. I expect some people to be offended. But you know what? I want you to be challenged by what I'm saying here. Does anybody believe that healing was going to come out of a trip to Rome? Asking for, or demanding, or imploring, or, or somehow being there to accept an apology from the Pope? Apology not accepted. No, you have some contrition, mister. You have some contrition for 400, 500, 500 years of oppression that came out of your church dogma. And it's not even just us. Because that doctrine of Christian discovery resulted in slavery throughout the world. So before you try apologizing for something, you better figure out how you, what role you can play, if any, in trying to make some of this right. I mean, our people died. They were murdered. They were slaughtered. They were raped in the name of these Christian nations of Europe. And not just when Columbus landed. The, the conquistadors and all those who, who traveled with your missions, your Catholic missions, even up the California coastline, the rape and murder and death associated with those men who were spreading Christendom by the sword, it's appalling. And you don't just have to go back 100 years or 200 years. I would argue that much of the, again, the, 
the clergy sex scandals that have plagued the Catholic Church and others, because it's not just the Catholic Church, have a lot of their roots in the doctrine of Christian discovery. And look, I know that the Catholic Church was committing atrocities, or, or there were people committing atrocities in the name of the, of the church throughout Europe, too. But this, this is just more of that same. But when you have churches that are given power of attorney and complete unfettered access and control over a children, native children, just because they're native children, you're feeding that pedophilia. Oh, yeah, it's a terrible thing when these Catholic priests were molesting you know, white kids. And there's all kinds of reaction to that, media frenzy over that. But, but th is anybody really raising the issue that, that Native children were killed by, by clergy in these schools that were funded by the U.S. and Canadian governments? Yeah, there's a bit of a problem there. So, no, apology not accepted. Apology not accepted. All right, enough about the Pope. Deb Haaland. Look, you have heard me criticize Deb Haaland. Um, look, I, w I was never a big fan when she was elected in the Congress. I mean, it's okay that she was elected. I mean, she's just like anybody else, right? But she wasn't elected to Congress by Native people. She was elected by white people. She was a part of the whole Democratic Party. I mean, I think she was even a, you know, a party chairperson or something like that in, in New Mexico. She was all in with the Democrats. And when she was elected, and in fact, when any Native person is elected into Congress or into the Senate, it's white people that elect them. No, it, it is. I mean, let's, let's break it down and look at the numbers. How much of a Native population exists in any of these, these areas? What, what's the Native constituency of, of, you know, of her district? Was that enough to get her elected? No, hell no, not even close. And not for Sharice David or, or anybody else. It requires white folks to elect them. So who are they answerable to? If the vast and overwhelming majority of the people that elected you or who vote in general, <laughs> even if they didn't elect you, who participated in the process are white, you're the victor of this contest put up by white folks. So, look, I don't have a problem with her getting elected. I have a problem with somebody saying, oh, great, now we have a voice in Congress. No, we don't. She's one of them. And when she got appointed for a, for a cabinet position, in the Biden administration, again, I heard people say, oh, great, we finally have a seat at the table. No, we don't. It's their table. We could have always had a seat at the table. You didn't have to put a Native person in that spot. You didn't, I mean, and if we, if we accept that somehow she was an exceptional person, then we lost that exceptional person to that system. She works for Joe Biden. She doesn't work for us. We didn't place her into that position. Now, I don't know, maybe it's even unfair for us to assume that because she is Native and has native or her Native origins, is it unfair for us to expect her to, to, <laughs> to elevate our voices? 
Look, she doesn't have to elevate him. She has to give us give us an opportunity. She has to give us a seat at the table. But you know what? You've heard me talk about what the Senecas have, ex- have experienced in New York over this battle over revenue, gaming revenue. Well, Deb Hallen hasn't given us a seat at the table. The Senecas haven't had a seat at her table to, dis- to discuss something that she is aware of. She knows gaming. Why? Because she worked for Laguna Pueblo. I think she was involved in their gaming operation. She was also involved in a gaming operation that was under siege by the state of New Mexico. So she knows the issue. She knows the conflict. She knows what revenue sharing is and what it isn't. That being fair. (laughs) But as the Secretary of the Interior Department, she could have done what previous secretaries haven't done which is their damn job. Look, when Gail Norton, a, you know, one of the, her, her, uh, Deb Hallen's predecessors, approved the Seneca's gaming compact with the state of New York for, for, uh, in 2002, so gaming could start, she had to approve a revenue-sharing agreement that on some sort of principle, suggested the state was providing an exclusivity zone to the Senecas. And for that, the Senecas would pay an ever-increasing percentage or or, or an increasing percentage of what was labeled as the the net slot drop of their slot machines, which started out at 18%, went to 22%, and then went to 25% for the last seven years of a 14-year compact. And the problem with that was yeah, the, the Gail Norton could say, all right, so the, the, the state offered them something and they're paying something, uh, paying them for what they offered. But that's not merely what the Interior Secretary was supposed to do. They were supposed to assess whether what the state gave was worth what the, what the Senecas was going give, to give back to the state. And even if you didn't know that in 2002, well, we don't know what that, 18 to 25% was going to equal. Well, I'll tell you what it equaled. By the time it got to 25%, it equaled almost, and oftentimes, above 50% of the total net revenue of the slot machines was being given to the state for no investment, for no equity, no stake in the gaming operations. They were getting essentially 50% of of the net revenue. But again, so what did they give up? Well, what they gave up was they gave up the right to approve or be involved in class three gaming in terms of slot machines, class three slot machines in all of Western New York. Well, wait a second. The state couldn't do it anyway. So Gail Norton approves this deal. And, and again, so did the Senecas. But, you know, the Senecas, the vast majority of Senecas never got to read the 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 details of the compact. They said, oh, we're getting exclusivity from the state. All right, yeah, we can give, give the money for that. No, you didn't get gaming exclusivity. You got an exclusivity only for class three slot machines. The state had every intention of, get, of competing against you and taking whatever market share you build up with your casinos, they were going to come right in behind you with, with whatever legal means they could take some of that gaming market. So even if Gail Norton didn't know in 2002 
what the value of the revenue sharing was going to be and what the value of that so-called exclusivity was? You had 14 years to figure it out. And in those 14 years, the Seneca's paid $1.4 billion to the, to the state of New York for something to pay the state of New York not to do something they couldn't do anyway. They weren't prohibited from doing class three slots because of the gaming compact. They were prohibited from doing class three slots because, because of their own law. Their law prohibited it. And that's just a matter of fact. That's not an opinion. In fact, it wouldn't be until 2013 that the state finally was able to, to ride the, the gaming market that the Senecas had build, built, along with the Oneidas and the Mohawks, for that matter, and finally do something that the state wasn't able to do for, for decades, which is change their constitution to allow them to authorize Class 3 gaming. And it wouldn't be until 2017 that the state's first licensed casino would open. So for the 14-year period that the Senecas were paying, and at some point as high as 50% of their net revenue to the state of New York, the state couldn't have, couldn't have competed against them anyway. Not within that limited exclusivity language. So why didn't Gail Norton ever look at that? I mean, whose responsibility was it? I mean, the Seneca suspended payment for several years along the way when the state was expanding their racetracks into, uh, into casinos. Doesn't somebody think that the Interior Department should have said, wait, wait, we need to look at this. And in fact, today, the Interior Department acknowledges both through the National Indian Gaming Commission and, and the Interior Department, they know that the current period of the compact, which is a renewal, a renewal period, was never reviewed by the Interior Department. It was never even reviewed. It wasn't approved. It wasn't declined. It, it wasn't even looked at. And certainly, it, it hasn't been looked at with the changes in this renewal period that came out of arbitration, which, which is forcing the Seneca Nation to pay. So, Deb Hallen, where are you? Where's that native woman who posed for all those magazines with great fashion and flair? Where are you on the substantive issues? Look, I, I get it. You did issue a proclamation that all federal lands with the name Squaw associated were going to be changed. And, and I agree with that. But you know what? There's nothing around here that affects the Seneca Nation with the name Squad, or there was a Squaw Island, uh, you know, that, that got changed through no help from the Interior Department. But this gaming issue, I again, I got to say it over and over again. For many Native territories, their sole source of public finance comes from gaming. This isn't a luxury. This doesn't make Native territories rich. The Senecas aren't rich. In fact, most Senecas still, I think, I think, over 30% of the Seneca population still lives below the poverty line in, in, in Western New York. And it's not because somebody's grabbing all that money. Well, I guess it is because that somebody is Kathy Hochul. And before her, Andrew Cuomo. They've been grabbing all the money from, the, from Seneca Gaming. And what's left has to pay for the operation and has to be the sole source of public finance for the, for the Seneca Nation.
I mean, the Senecas get, I think they just you know, got some of their so-called annuity you know, restored. They get $600 a month. That's not even enough to pay rent, folks. So before, the next time you, you judge and say, oh, the Senecas are getting rich off this stuff, no, they aren't. They are. Look, <laughs> there are haves and have-nots every place. And, but most of the high-paying jobs in the Seneca Nation go to white folks. Their casino uh, general manager isn't native. Their high-priced lawyers aren't native. Most of the, the most lucrative contracts associated with the Seneca Nation go to white folks. Uh, and look, for, and some of that is for good reason. But some of it is just the nature of the economics that exist here. The Seneca Nation doesn't have a full functioning economy. They rely on buying the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of every product and service back into, into Western New York, which isn't a terrible thing for the economy. But that means that even without this gross, offensive, obscene revenue sharing, Western New York is still the, a much more they 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 have they benefit much more from Seneca Gaming than the Senecas do. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's just the, that's just the truth. Because if that dollar doesn't come into Seneca into a Seneca community and change hands two or three or four times, then the real beneficiary of the of of that economics is is Western New York. Is the that money comes in and goes out immediately. I'm not saying that it serves no benefit to Senecas. But if you were to try to do these economic multipliers that, goes, that are associated with economic activity, you realize the Senecas aren't the, the beneficiary of that economic activity. Western New York is. And I know that gets complicated. But this comes back to my ask. Deb Howland, where are you? The previous administration told the Senecas that we won't review um, a compact or a revenue sharing deal, unless both parties ask for it. And you know, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Well, that's like telling a crime victim, "I'm sorry, we can't investigate your crime unless the perpetrator of that crime, alleged perpetrator of that crime, agrees to be investigated." The Senecas are getting screwed by the state. What Kathy Hochul did by by freezing their entire source of public finance and, and, and economy was a racist act. It was an aggressive racist act. And look, if she had done that to any other group of people, I'm not talking about a company here. We're not talking about a company here. We're talking about the Seneca people. If she had done that to black people, not a black-owned company, but to black people or a Jewish or Jewish people, not a Jewish company, but Jewish people? She'd have been hung out to dry. But the, the, the mass media immediately stepped over what she did to the Senecas and say, yeah, but now that money that she got from the Senecas, which there's a lot of debate amongst white people on whether, she, you know, whether that was right for her to do that. that many believe it was, it was fine. There's a bigger debate on, on her taking that money and putting it into a bill stadium than on how she got the money in the first place. I mean, she literally 
held the Seneca Nation hostage, forcing a, ra a ransom payment of over a half a billion dollars to come out of the Senecas. And my question is, Deb Hallin, where are you? Where are you? Look, I don't believe you are our voice in the federal government. But you're there, and you're native, and you have some gaming experience. You have some experience with this push and pull between the states and our gaming operations under this racist law, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. And the only thing that makes the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act more racist is the lack of oversight that the Interior Department has had in, in trying to check up the states. I mean, and the crazy part is that Hallen's Interior Department and the National Indian Gaming Commission, as a part of this oversight, would not even look at the main issues associated with the state's aggression. They cited a requirement in the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that was, was geared towards protecting Native people from, from third-party aggression, whether it's organized crime, vulture capitalists, aggressive gaming uh, you know, industry management companies. It said, well, a third party cannot obtain proprietary interest in a gaming native gaming operation. The only thing the NIGC did was, was try to apply that standard to, um, to a, a state gaming compact, to, to a state. And then found that the factors that would determine, determine proprietary interest simply didn't apply to a state because the state was written in. They're written in, in IGRA. They're written in to have control over some of the gaming operations. They're, they're approved to take revenue through this gross mis manipulation of revenue sharing provisions. And their long-term relationship with, with native gaming is bolstered and praised by the, by the Interior Department. <laughs> the, the NIGC literally said, well, even though long-term relationships are one of the factors that determine this proprietary interest uh, requirement problem, uh, we don't hold that against the states because we find that long-term gaming compacts provide stability to Native people. No, they don't. How do they provide stability if the Interior Department will not provide any oversight? Since Gail Norton's approval, which... The NIGC cited, nobody's ever said, oh, yeah, this revenue sharing thing is not, is not really illegal anymore. It no longer represents a purchase of a concession from the state that is substantially beneficial to the business. No, actually, they're paying far more than what the state claims with an exclusivity is even worth. And actually, if you were to evaluate at least the, the, the spirit of the agreement in terms of an exclusivity, you would notice that that exclusivity became less valuable over time because the state expanded its Class 2 facilities to look just like Class 3 facilities and then ultimately changed their constitution so they could do Class 3 gaming.
in direct competition with the Seneca Nation. So how has that exclusivity, if it ever had any value at all, how has it sustained any value? Well, it hasn't. If it had any value at all, it became valued less over time as the Senecas were paying more. So Deb Howell, where are you? Where are you? When are you going to review what New York State and so many other states are doing to Native people? When are you going to put a stop? I mean, put a stop to this to this illegal revenue sharing. Because under the Interior Department's definition of what is a legal revenue sharing provision, most of these states have violated it. But you won't call them out on it. Do you expect a state to say, oh, would you please see if what I'm doing is illegal? Do you really think a state is going to do that? You're that native person who broke the glass ceiling and became a cabinet secretary. Well, what the hell good is it if you don't do your, do your job any more than the white folks that came before you? And look, plenty of women have sat in that job. Gail Norton, Sally Jewell. They didn't do their job either. Yeah, they, they approved oil leases and did all the other things that the Interior Department is doing. But you sit there in, somehow astonished with some of the revelations of the deaths that occurred on, in residential schools in Canada while taking no ownership for what the United States has done. Now you're stuck in a tough spot because you're supposed to be a Native person who should be appalled by the history of the United States' role in residential schools, and at the same time, you're representing the United States. You are a part of the system that oppress our that are, that have oppressed our people. So when do you step up? And when do you say, okay, look, I don't even have to write new law here. The law is clear that we as the Interior Department need to provide oversight against aggressive states when it comes to gaming. It's written into the into the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. But again, the only thing that makes that that more racist is the absolute failure of the Interior Department to do its job. And that failure continues with Deb Hallam. And that, folks, is a problem. We don't have a seat at the table. They took somebody away from Native community or with a Native identity and stuck them in their seat at the table. Well, that doesn't give us a voice. And the system is so skewed that Native people never have the conversation with the people they need to have a conversation with. Oh, they hire lawyers and they hire lobbyists who supposedly carry their message. But I've seen some of those messages. I've seen what the consultants provide. I've seen their consultants claim, oh, yeah, the Seneca Nation is a part of the system of federalism. They fit in right in there with the hierarchy of government somewhere between state and county. Really? We're, you're saying that native sovereign nations are a part of this system of federalism? I know that's what they're pushing on the Canadian side. But we're, we don't accept that. I don't know any territory that has specifically defined 
where they fit in that system of federalism. Are they higher than a county but lower than a state? Really? How did that happen? When did that happen? Where is that written someplace? But these are what the white consultants say. The white consultants and the white lawyers and the white lobbyists and even the native lawyers and lobbyists will argue about our vulnerability to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, which is now directly under the, you know, under the authority of, of a native woman who won't do her job. Did we become less vulnerable to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act and to the aggressive states now that Deb Hallin is in there? Well, I'm waiting. And look, please prove me wrong. Please. Please do your job where none of your predecessors would. Please do that. And you know what? I will be the first one to say that your appointment was a good thing. Look, you know, we also heard this over things like Supreme Court justices. I mean, I, I remember when, uh, when somebody suggested that Diane Humatiwa should be nominated for the Supreme Court because she's a, uh, a Navajo, a Diné, I guess, um, uh, federal judge in Arizona. But did anybody look at her track record? Her first native case, which involved native people trying to resist a highway being put through their ancestral lands, she ruled against the native people. So yeah, she fit the bill fine. She could sit there in, in, as a judge and not be swayed by her own native heritage. In fact, she could rule against native people just like any white woman or any white judge could have done. Does it matter that a native person get put into those positions? If to even reach the qualification for those positions, they essentially have to reject the cultural impulses. <laughs> I mean, do you really think that the Deb Hallen would have would have been approved as a cabinet position if she didn't? prove her worth in the system, in that system of oppression that our people have you know, been fighting for hundreds of years. So yeah, my question is, Deb Hound, where are you? Show yourself. And you know what? You need to show yourself whichever way you're going to, but your silence is deafening. If you're going to do your job and then rule against the Senecas, then do it. So we can stop pretending that the Interior Department has some trust responsibility to us. Most of us don't agree with that anyway. But you keep saying it. Why don't, why don't you put that, put that to, to rest? Do your job one way or the other. Look, the Senecas set that money aside in the event that when you did your job, that you did it like all the others before you and would rule against the Senecas. They were prepared for that. But what nobody's prepared for is for you to sit there and do nothing and not do your job. So yeah, that's 
That's my ask. Deb Hallen, where are you? Show yourself. And I hope you do the right thing. And I, and I hope you do the right thing and make me wrong. Make me eat my words. I'd be happy to do it. If you review this thing and do it legitimately and, and see what the, what the state of New York, what Kathy Hochul has done to the Seneca Nation, if you do the right thing, I'll, I'll praise you for it. I'll say yes. You know what? Having a Native person in, the, uh, in a cabinet secretary position, um, you know, it, it, it did have value. And I always hoped it, it would. But I always had to keep reminding people, she doesn't work for us. She doesn't have our, she does, isn't carrying our voice. She works for the president of the United States. She serves at the pleasure of Joe Biden. She is working for the United States. Now, that doesn't mean she has to be, you know, terrible at it. But I just have to be convinced that being Native in those positions matters. And I hope she proves me wrong. I really do. I want to thank you for listening. Hey, if you're in Washington and you uh, happen to have a brush with power <laughs> in Washington, Ask her. Ask Deb Hallen, where are you? The Senecas are looking for you. And not because we want to do you harm. We want to see if you can stop the harm. That's my ask. This is John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.